I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, producer Jonah here. This is the last episode of season one. So thank you so much for being part of the journey. We will be back soon with season two. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. And a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic. Find us at Principle of Charity on all platforms and be part of the discussion. See you soon. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman, and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. Emil, could you tell us a little bit about our topic today? The topic today, Lloyd, is should business focus on social impact or just stick with profit? Now, classical economics has taught us that if businesses just focus on their own profit, the benefits will flow to society. It may sound weird, but it works. When, when you buy something from a company, you get what you want. The company makes money. Both sides get value. If the market is competitive, the price will be fair and will release the maximum value to society. With billions of people lifted out of poverty by this capitalist machine over the last couple of hundred years, it is hard to deny its power. In recent years, though, there's been a growing movement which says that the pursuit of profit is not enough. Now, sure, it's got done good but it's also created problems like growing inequality and damage to the environment. It says there are many other stakeholders who are left out with a single-minded focus on shareholder profit, such as the environment, employees, and the community. It argues that business should lead with social impact or social purpose, leaving profit as just one important aim. Now, this challenge to capitalism brings up many questions. Fundamentally, does a business owe anything to society at all? And does having a social purpose actually help society any more than when businesses just make goods that people want to buy for profit. Who gets to decide what this, what the social purpose actually is? You know, with the potential for so many competing politically motivated purposes, maybe we'll end up in more of a mess. And why can't all of this just be resolved using some basic economic principles? For example, if companies are polluting the air, then maybe they don't need to start caring about air quality. Governments could just ban polluting or or price in pollution through things like taxes. In the end. Is social impact just a way for companies to virtue signal, a marketing spin to make consumers feel warm and fuzzy and to buy their goods? Or is it a call to something much more profound, a true seismic shift in the way we see the role of business, where the common good is put first, where it belongs, and profit is just a part of the way to get there, albeit a key one. Now, with the global impact investment market at $715 billion worldwide, and ESG assets under management at $38 trillion, and businesses everywhere now writing their impact manifestos. The stakes are high. Who have we got on, Lloyd, to help us through all of this? Our two guests today, Emil, are Judith Sloan and Andy Cooper. Let me tell you about Judith first. Judith is an economist. She holds degrees from Melbourne and the London School of Economics, has held a number of government appointments, including Commissioner of the Productivity and Australia Fair Pay Commissions, she has sat on many company boards, amongst these Santos, Westfield, the ABC, and Prime Life, where she was also chair. And Judith is the contributing economics editor with the Australian newspaper and writes regularly for the Australian Spectator. Our other guest, Andy Cooper, is an investor and entrepreneur whose profit with purpose philosophy has shaped various global industries. Andy founded Leapfrog Investments in 2007. And by 2017, Fortune ranked Leapfrog as one of the top five companies to change the world. He has received leadership awards from, amongst others, the World Economic Forum and the Young Presidents Organization, holds a PhD from Cambridge, and has authored books on globalization and governance. And Emil, with respect to both Judith and Andy, it would seem to me both are big believers in the power of capitalism and profit. 
But where Judith is somewhat suspicious of the benefits of the social impact movement, Andy thinks social purpose should be the primary lens. I mean, let's see if we can flesh these different viewpoints out and uh, let's bring on the guests. Thank you, Judith and Andy, for joining us. Um, Judith, could we start with you? Why should companies focus on profit and, and forget about social purpose? If you could just take us through a bit of the basics of how profit does deliver value to society. Well, thanks, Emil, very much for having me. Um, and I think it's a great topic that you've chosen. Um, I would just start by saying that there's a difference, I think, between the purpose of a company and what a company does. Now, I think all successful companies must almost by definition offer up valuable products or services to customers, right? So uh, you can't be in business unless you do this. Um, what, though, is the purpose of the company? Well, I think that also depends on if we're talking about a private company, a privately owned company, well, the private owners can kind of have whatever purpose they have in mind. But when it comes to, for example, a listed company with a range of shareholders, those shareholders have put up the capital. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for those shareholders to expect a return on the capital they've invested. So that's how I see the world. Does a social purpose that sits outside of a focus on shareholders hurt the shareholders? How does that relationship work between a company deciding to to, to do more than focus on the shareholders? Well, I, I mean, I sort of go back, you know, over 200 years and, and you know, there's a very famous quote from uh, Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations in 1776, which basically says that uh, it's not from the benevolence of the, the baker, the brewer uh, and uh, the butcher that uh, we uh, expect to be served, but because of their... Um, promotion of self-interest from their, their requirement to make a profit. Um, so people often focus on Milton Friedman, which was, of course, nearly 200 years later, as being, um, I think, a fairly bland statement saying that companies had no social purpose, that they should entirely focus on, on profit. I think if you sort of read through that, it was actually a slightly more nuanced view, which is, of course, Companies must always comply with uh, a range of uh, legislative, legislative measures and regulations and the like, which often deal with what you might regard those social purposes. Great. Well, I think we'll get to some of those questions of how governments can deal with externalities and can bring in purpose within companies. But let's just move to you, Andy, now. How would you make the basic argument for, for, so, for the need for social impact or social purpose? Well, I think the first thing is to say that capitalism has been a tremendous driver of human prosperity and companies at the center of that. So if you look at uh, pre the industrial revolution uh, and the scientific revolution in 1800, the average life expectancy worldwide was 29 mm. and there was no country in which people on average live past 40. It's now more than double that. And uh, so clearly what we're not debating is capitalism, but what we are uh, discussing, I think, is whether the current forms of capitalism that it takes um, optimize on this prosperity. And uh, Adam Smith, in fact, uh, wrote a more significant book called The Theory of Modern Moral Sentiments, uh, where he articulated how capitalism was not intended to be, uh, or markets were not intended to be a system that were an end in their own right, that maximizing profit is not just good for its own sake, but rather profit is a means to an end for societies and that markets and states can be structured in different ways to come up with more or less positive outcomes. And essentially what we have seen is the failure of a Milton Friedman paradigm to generate the kind of shared prosperity that was the fundamental aim of those who enabled capitalism. And within that context, we've seen the growth now of purpose-driven businesses, businesses that truly focus on providing essential services across the board, not just to wealthy elites. 
And the evidence is quite overwhelming now, and I can reference some of that, that these businesses have certain competitive advantages and can outperform traditional businesses of various kinds. And I say that not as a commentator, but as someone who runs a private equity firm that's had $2 billion committed by sophisticated investors. Mm. So mm. I'm not uh, making this as a hypothesis or a hopey changey statement, much more as someone who's in fact done it and been involved in it and seen it at the rock face. Can we just go back to something you were saying there, Andy, and, and focus in on what actually is left out? What social good is left out when we focus on profit? When companies burrow in on profit, they are creating huge value and it's a proxy for social benefit. But what is left out? Why do we need to start including other things? What are those things? I think there are two kinds of answers to this problem. The first that Judith alluded to, we could capture under the notion of uh, ESG, environmental, social and governance. So companies that perform bad things like the company to sell cigarettes to young children or the company to enslave people in foreign countries, uh, those sorts of companies uh, we should not uh, tolerate or encourage. And more generally, business practices that are destructive of human well-being, uh, you could have every reason for thinking uh, are not things to be encouraged. Uh, even if they can be profitable, uh, we wouldn't want to necessarily encourage them because it confuses the means and the end. And furthermore, that you might have an argument in favor of ESG, that if you have uh, these sorts of protections, actually companies can do better sustainably over the long term. That's one kind of argument. Could you just define ESG? Uh, it's environmental and social governance. So the idea that you look at the environmental impacts of a firm, you look at its impacts on the community, and you look at whether it has good governance uh, or whether it's uh, you know, a loose cannon. So taking those sorts of factors into account has been argued to be both important in its own right, because you don't want to create what are called negative externalities or very negative outcomes from businesses pursuing their purposes. And they can be taken to be things that enhance the sustainability of a firm because it's doing well by its community and it's not destroying its environment mm. and so on. Mm. So that's one kind of argument. Another is much more focused on actually purpose-driven companies. In other words, companies that don't just not do bad stuff, but that really focus on doing good stuff. So providing medication to those children rather than tobacco. And there, there has been an increasing revolution over the past decade or two around uh, purpose-driven business and around impact investing. So investors who invest in those kinds of businesses where it's become quite evident that there are ways to see opportunities that are underserved and find solutions for long-standing social problems that actually generate significant profit and outcomes. Yep, great, thanks. Judith, I mean, whatever one thinks, I think there is a reality out there that people, that certain people are losing some faith in in, in capitalism or in this traditional classical economic idea of business and the profit motive being the driver of social good. I mean, do you think there are legitimate problems with the model? And and if so, what are they? Well, of course, Emil, you know, none of this is particularly new. So we had the idea of corporate social responsibility. You know, that was sort of fashionable in the sort of 70s and 80s. It sort of morphed into different words. You know, we had triple bottom line. That was a, that was popular too. The ESG movement is very big at the moment. Um, you know, there are whole bureaucracies within companies who write nice words and arguably create ESG washing uh, because they think this is reputation enhancing and therefore that will be reflected in sales and in share price. Um, uh, and arguably, the more people who get onto the ESG bandwagon, the less will be the comparative advantage, I might add. Um, you know, I think there's a, a certain cynical aspect to this, to tell you the truth, and, and that's why I'm much more at the basic end of this uh, debate. Don't get me wrong, I think company reputation is incredibly important. And full compliance with the law and regulations is really important. But when you start talking about slavery or selling tobacco to miners and stuff, those are illegal activities. 
you know, so this has got nothing to do with how you regulate the companies. This is about the companies complying with the law. So, and let me make, I think, what is a very strong point is that ultimately if you get this incredible mishmash of objectives that companies are expected to fulfil, so not just profit but, you know, fixing the environment, you know, dealing nicely with the stakeholders, investing in the community, arguably they end up not being accountable at all, you know, because there are so many different things going on, some of them inconsistent with each other. Thank you. Thank you. And I do want to just push you again on this point of whether you fundamentally think that the pursuit of profit does cross over perfectly in that Venn diagram with social good or is it just like the best and simplest proxy? Well, we I think have for it's, it? it's very important to probably emphasise sustainable profit. I think everyone accepts that just like a sugar hit, one can maximise short-term profit in various ways that are probably not particularly socially desirable, but ultimately not good for the company. So I think it is worth focusing on, uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm slightly loath to use the term sustainable because that's a term that the environmentalists have captured but let's call us call it um, enduring profitability um, and so we do want our companies be, to be taking sure. a sort of medium to long-term view of this uh, and that I think does involve a different mindset as to just uh, for example taking a, perhaps a sort of short-term exploitative view of uh, if you, for example, have a short-term monopoly position in a particular good, for example, uh, that's probably not a good idea. So don't get me wrong, Emil. I think um, for company uh, managers, managing the reputation of a company is incredibly important in terms of promoting those enduring uh, profitabilities. Um, but at the same time, to my mind, it's very important for them never to forget that it is the shareholders who own the company and ultimately they should regard the shareholders as essentially their masters and they are their servants. Great. And that's a great way to put it, to think about long-term value and profit in a way being able to incorporate some of the concerns of the impact movement uh, but again, it does roll all those concerns with into a more sophisticated framework of profit. I mean, can I move to you, Andy? And just on Judith's point of, you know, looking at some of the externalities and the, the role of government and the law, can these problems really just be solved by um, pricing in things that haven't been priced in by the market? You know, pricing in air pollution, having laws that stop slavery as we do, that all the things that people who focus on the impact movement worry about, can the end be priced in and effectively managed by the capitalist, you know, uh, traditional system? I think it's important to see that some aspects can be priced in uh, if you have an effective state that uh, engages in regulatory activity uh, at the right speed and with the right enforcement capacity. But it is worth saying that the vast majority of states do not have the capacity, and I work globally, to create a raft of legislation and uh, immense enforcement against all these areas of activity. And I think that also leads for people who are more capitalist uh, and libertarian in a direction that is quite concerning because it places this enormous faith in the state's ability to recognize all the bads and regulate all the actors in a quite comprehensive way. Mm. And the very commitment to capitalism, which I hold dear, is that you should have markets where people are able to pursue their various activity without excess intrusion by the state. And so the reality is Adam Smith's uh, invisible hand needs to be complemented by a glove of regulations and institutions. But if that glove is too thick, the hand can't move. So I think there's a very strong argument that fiduciaries need to focus on, uh, need to be encouraged by the state to focus on the right kinds of activities and fiduciary obligations of directors 
and desires with shareholders don't exist in a vacuum where we come out of a state of nature. They exist within a society and a state, mm. and that state can create conditions where companies can be more or less purpose-driven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, in my research for this, it does seem like there is a very radical claim being made at the heart of it, which is to do with t making stakeholders intrinsic and not instrumental. Like, it's actually like quite a deep philosophical shift. Like, for example, you know, we could say we treat, we treat employees well because we have to by law. And if we do more than that, it's because we, you know, we think we can attract and retain better employees for the future, even, you know, going back to Judith's example of long-term thinking for companies want to, you know, do a lot more than is required. But the, the shift to impact or purpose might say we treat employees well because they are state key stakeholders and we actually care about their well-being. And as a byproduct of that, we are like, it's likely that they might stay around longer and we can attract better employees. That flip seems fundamental to the shift that's going on now, which is to try to not confuse the means with the ends that, you know, you alluded to um, with, with Adam Smith. Is, Judith, is the flip important or is it really just marketing waffle and that we, you know, if we just keep keep focusing on profits, in the end of the day, we're going to end up in the same position and in a probably a simpler, more efficient way. Well, I think it's often HR waffle um, as much as marketing waffle, to tell you the truth. You know, they'll tell you, you know, sure. you have to be the employer of choice and, um, you know, follow all the dictates from the HR tink twinks. Yeah, look, you see, I'm kind of interested in you talking about externalities and the like. Well, you know, uh, companies are not governments. Uh, it's the role of governments to deal with externalities, no. actually, uh, in my opinion. It's not the role of governments, like of companies, to be dealing with externalities. So let me give you a, a practical example. So there was a fellow called um, Emmanuel Fabe, and he was the CEO of uh, Danone. So you probably know that, you know, they make yogurt. Uh, it's a French company. And he was work central you know he was really into ESG and uh, there's something called the B corporations in the um, in the US where you're certified a B corporation which means you're really really good really really virtuous um, and Emmanuel uh, Fabe was a, a big advocate of this um, the trouble was that Danone was not a very profitable company uh, and its profits were sliding relative to its, its competitors, you know, for example, Nestle. And uh, also as part of his response to the profitability decline, he wanted to get into plant-based food and he wanted to impose carbon pricing on the financial results of the company. Um, he was actually sacking large numbers of people. So this is kind of slightly problematic for uh, Emmanuel. Anyhow, eventually the shareholders, uh, and, and that's an interesting point which you might want to explore, Emil, the, the shareholders are not sort of evenly distributed. So uh, a, a, a group of shareholders who held a large number of shares uh, jacked up at this chap and got rid of it, right, because it was all very well in pursuing his uh, virtuous ESG Um vision and and bear in mind we have got what I call the agent principle problem right so it was just his views really so who knows what the shareholders thought you know this guy was just taking it upon himself to run this uh, campaign so to speak but they got rid of him so you know I think there are um you know that is that is I think a, a problem in all of this that the managers of these listed companies are agents for the principals, the principals being the shareholders. And, you know, we've seen this in America where some of the CEOs are taking views about changes to voting laws and, uh, and uh, uh, attitudes to the BLM movement and the like. Well, you know, who are they representing? I mean, that basically is their individual opinion. They're not consulting the shareholders. So that, I think, is another problem. Yeah. Yeah, gonna, we're going to move to that in a sec. I think that's just a fascinating area. But before we do, can I just, I mean, that's a great example with Danone, a company that is seemingly virtuous, but maybe is not delivering, delivering on the profit side. But conversely, do you think companies can be profitable and bad for society? 
Well, I think, you know, but, I mean, you see, therein lies the problem. I mean, bad for society is an opinion. Whereas I, I like uh, to take the view that uh, what is the government's view of that activity? If they think that it is so bad for society, then they should legislate to ban it. And if they think it's kind of sort of bad, uh, but we should tolerate it, then they'll choose to, you know, tax it or um, restrict it. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I think a general point in this discussion is that as far as possible, we want to take it out of the realm of individual opinions and to try and, and lodge it in some sort of objective metrics as far as possible. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and certainly the current system has been pretty successful at that. I mean, do you worry about that, Andy? If we bring morality and social purpose into business, don't we just end up with sort of a license for businesses who are, you know, not elected by the, pop, the populace to, to get political and with competing ideas of the social good and more powerful businesses end up dominating and the more extreme political views dominate and the companies get cancelled? Like, how does one manage all that noise, you know, isn't profit in the end maybe just the the cleanest, most efficient way to get it, you know, at, at not all, but a lot of social good? Yeah, I think there's a lot to respond to there. I mean, firstly, of course, there is impact washing, virtue signaling, uh, hypocrisy in any markets. But just like somebody trying to jip people out of money using some blockchain uh, scam, uh, doesn't invalidate the success of Apple or Amazon. Uh, we can't just point to an instance or two and think that that uh, destroys a particular model. So, you know, in yogurt, you could look at Danone, but you could also look at the Chobani model, which was a company built by someone who deliberately built social purpose and had exactly the points on employees that you mentioned, Emil. Um, similarly, we could look at extremely profitable tobacco companies over the past hundred years. It would have been a great stock to be in and look back and say governments weren't very effective at regulating that. They've become more so in the developed world. And yet these tobacco companies just turn and go to the developing world, which have much less uh, regulatory capacity and enforcement capacity and end up killing yet more people fairly directly. So I think the... The idea somehow that there's this um, omniscient state uh, that will take care of everything and we can just leave it to the other actors to pursue what they want uh, has been invalidated, I think, very substantially by history. I also think that this notion of a fundamental trade-off between profit and purpose so uh, th uh, has been has been recognized to be in many ways misguided uh, and a particularly uh, obfuscatory notion from the Friedmanites because it, uh, it hid a great range of opportunities and a great number of errors with this simplicity of pursue profit over others. So when we look at the companies that uh, we and others invest in now that are providing, say, uh, medications to low-income people or insurance that allows people to get to the hospital uh, if they got COVID and pay for it when they wouldn't otherwise in a developing country. If you look at these instances, these turned out to be massive business opportunities. But people looked at people looked at it and said, mm, "This is just th this doesn't fit with our paradigm. Business is not about solving problems, so we're not going to look to solve problems. We're just going to look to sell more of what we have to relatively wealthy people." So I think there are ways in which the pure profit motive fundamentally um, misleads even the best of capitalists. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Well, Lloyd, I'm going to throw a question to you here because you're a consultant and you work with top business leaders around the world. And I want to move to sort of the question of virtue signaling. When they talk to you about social purpose, are they, are they being cynical? Are they bullshitting or do they see it as a marketing tool? Or do they genuinely see it as a way to consider mm. values outside the, pro the profit motive? <laughs> that is a very good question, Emil. I, I, in our cone of silence. Yeah, here, in the cone of silence, I'm keeping us. everything confidential, of course. <laughs> I, I actually think there are two dimensions to that. I think a lot of people, uh, in my experience in corporate, would say, in order for us to maintain our competitive advantage, in order for us to uh, maintain our customers, 
we need to understand what the social license is currently. And if we understand that social license, we need to play that game. And that means uh, we may have to curtail certain activities. Uh, we may have to promote certain charities or even engage in some social action. So, so they very well understand social license. And I think there's just a pure shareholder view around that. On the other hand, I do think that there are many, many people in companies who actually feel very strongly, the employees who feel very strongly about these social issues, meaning they are part of management. And in that sense, those social movements, those social actions are very important to them as individuals. Because when they walk into that company, not only are they employees, but they are also social citizens. They don't make a distinction between I am working for company X and I'm an Australian. They go, I'm both. And in that sense, they would want to see their company doing both. And, and I think companies obtain competitive advantage by having some of the best employees work for them. And on that basis, they also understand that they sometimes need to attract the best talent by, by engaging in some of these social issues. So that's my, that's my experience. Yeah, yeah. I think social license is an interesting concept because it sort of combines um, a sort of social uh, impact motive with mm. just the reality of trying to be a company that ends up uh, being able to do business and making profit. Emil, um, if, if I could just endorse um, Lloyd's point there about the competitive advantage of purpose-driven businesses, this is no longer really a hypothesis. So Cambridge Associates, who create the main benchmarks for investors, has seen that impact investing firms, that is firms that invest in purpose-driven businesses, um, outperform uh, more conventional investors. Uh, Wharton has done a study of the same. Um, and we at LeapFrog have seen it happen year after year, where on average, our companies have grown at 26% a year, which outperforms a lot of other averages. So if you look at that, and then you get very hardcore about the numbers, and you look at the metrics that can be adopted now that are objective, um, you see that the, the, the evidence has mounted and mounted. Uh, and it's no longer that there are just uh, some vague do-gooder uh, tragedy of good intentions notions out there. Your company, Andy, uh, Leapfrog Investments, and you know you come to these opportunities in the you know with some of the poorest people in the world providing or backing companies that provide financial services, healthcare to them. You could come to that through the lens of purpose, or you could come to it just through the lens of profit and see them see these markets as under exploited markets opportunities for companies to start and have huge growth potential, why would you need profit to recognize? Was everyone blind before? You know, was everyone blind previously? Why, why is purpose necessary? The question is, what does approaching it through this lens, the profit with purpose lens, the synergistic lens, yeah. help you to do that wasn't understood previously? Exactly. And I think there, there are the, uh, what I'd say, the four dimensions of the competitive advantage of a purpose-driven business. So it's more magnetic for customers. You get more support from regulators. Um, you're able to generate uh, products that, uh, via innovation because you're trying to solve um, social problems. Um, and you're able to sustainably operate in your environment in the social license sense that you were talking about. So there are these competitive advantages that were previously unappreciated, and now the data has come through, but there were some people who were doing it over a sustained period of time. And then the second thing is that people, we do exist, um, as Karl Popper and others have said, within certain paradigms. And some of those paradigms lead us to say, Oh, look over there, poverty, yuck, you can't make money there. Or, uh, oh, this country's a basket case, it's not going to work. And once you start saying, well, where can I go? That there are a large number of people who face fundamental social problems or environmental problems to help them solve those problems in a way that is ultimately sustainable, scalable, and profitable, you start seeing in a different way. So, for example, when we were in Kenya, we looked, we said, look, 30% of the medication out of pharmacies here that's prescribed is fake placebo or misprescribed. Now, we, we didn't say, gee, the pharmacy market doesn't work. We said, 
let's come up with a better alternative through the Good Life Company, which is a group of pharmacies that is now grown to be the largest provider of healthcare in East Africa because it's quality medication, well-trained pharmacists, etc. So we could see a different angle on the same thing because we were looking for it. And life is like that. When you go looking for something, when you go and try and weave things together, you're often able to mm. accomplish so much more than if you didn't have that perspective, which didn't mean the market opportunity didn't exist before, to be clear, yeah. and that a pure capitalist might not have seen it. But approaching each market and industry with this lens, just like a frugal innovation lens or a lens that is around technology or whatever the particular lens, helps you to see opportunities and risk in a much clearer way. When you talk to your investors and particularly the ones who care more about the social impact side, are you ever able to justify doing something because of the social impact and not because of the profit? Like, can you ever say, you know what, we might not have optimized this for profit, but there was something more important at stake here? So I think it very much depends on your time horizon. So I can very much um, say that there are times where you could do more social ill or do more social good, <laughs> trading off profit one way or the other. You can jack up the cost of an insurance policy to a low-income person by 50 cents or drop it by 50 cents, uh, and you immediately have that outcome. Uh, but I think that's where Judith's point is an important one, that if you take a longer-term view and you see that those competitive advantages are hard-won, deep-wired things in companies, um, constantly making these uh, exceptions. Oh, we'll just do a bit of social bad for this and then we won't really live up to our integrity here or there um, can be quite damaging. So insofar as your goal is to have a scalable, profitable institution, you don't tend to make those, uh, tend to make the trade-offs where you're just saying, oh, this is just really expensive, but we're going to do it anyway. Or, nor the trade-offs of, ah, this is socially not that beneficial, but it's destructive, right. but we're just going to do it anyway. You don't so see trade-offs as, as part I, of I do see, of, of course, I can see that you can make short-term trade-offs. In our experience over the long run, companies that really have this level of integrity at their core, and this goes beyond reputation, mm. do outperform, particularly in moments of resilience like last year. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, thanks. Well, Judith, just looking at ESG, we talked about environment, sustainability, governance, metrics, which is you know, a form of investing that's enormous, it's growing, um, it's where investments are screened that don't meet these certain standards, and I understand that they, they do change these standards depending on who's administering them. And for some people, I, it seems like it's about ensuring that their money isn't used to support dodgy businesses. And for others, people people care actually, you know, about the environment, about the community employees, and they believe that companies that do that will be more profitable in the long run. Do you, do you have a sense of the data? Does purpose or does let's just say ESG investments end up producing greater profit, or is there a trade off at, at its heart? Well, I think there are a lot of issues actually. I, I don't go for social license, by the way. I think that's a, a very unhelpful term. Why is that? Well, because, you know, there's no legislative backing to something called a social licence. A licence is a very strong word. I mean, reputation, of course. Mm. But uh, I really object to the term social licence because it implies that, you know, certain virtuous people can decide a company doesn't have a social licence. So uh, I, I'm uh, very opposed to that. Um, reputation, of course, is very important, both for mm -hmm. investors and customers. But uh, that's a slightly different issue. I think it's also worthwhile talking about the failure of a lot of these. Um, you know, for example, the uh, University of New South Wales has been engaged for many, many years now trying to devise a market for social impact bonds. So the idea is that people invest in these bonds and the underlying activity is doing good, for example, helping people escape poverty or helping people out of drug addiction, helping people out of homelessness, for example, which do generate significant uh, uh, positive upsides, obviously for the people, but also for society. But at the end of the day, it basically has, certainly in a developed economy, um, and, and that I think is an important point because 
there's clearly endemic government failure in developing economies and, and maybe the opportunities and the scope for company involvement is different there. It really hasn't got off the ground in Australia. When it comes to ESG uh, mm. investing, it, it's certainly true, although, you know, being an econometrician myself, I feel that a lot of the empirical studies on all of this is incredibly dodgy, by the way. It's a bit like the studies which show that if you have more women on the board, the company will be more successful or, you know, give it give a break. What, so you just go and get some woman off the street and put her on the board and it makes the company more successful? I don't think so. Maybe only I can say that. But, um, you know, there are, for example, some ESG uh, ETFs, um, you know, so they're an investment option for people and they have proven to be very, very popular uh, because, you know, as we've been talking about, people think, oh, yes, I need a return, but I'd like to think I'm doing good. So I think it's a bit early days to know whether the, the uh, ESG investment movement at that sort of macro level is going to yield anything different in terms of returns. But, um, you know, I, th- I think it's we need to have a bit of balance here. That And, and I go back to that point of what, what is good in the eyes of one person may not be good in the eyes of another person. Where does that lead us if we're, we're in the, the throes of a world where there are so many different ideas of social purpose? Couldn't you see that as a healthy world where companies are busy doing a whole range of different things with different social purposes? Where, where, why does that lead us into hot water, in your opinion? Well, let me give you a concrete example. So when we were having the marriage equality debate in Australia, as you will recall that, you know, Qantas, uh, a publicly owned, publicly listed company, got right on board. Uh, no doubt reflecting the personal opinion of the CEO, but so did the big banks. Anyhow, a friend of mine uh, works for one of those big banks and she is extraordinarily important and very technically trained, right? And her uh, um, supervisor, who was a very, very senior person, came to her and said, I want you to put out an email to all your reports and tell them to vote yes in the same-sex marriage vote. To which she replied, no, that is not part of my job. Mm. Now, I don't know what her personal view was, by the way, Mm. but, I mean, she really was drawing the line Mm. between what she regarded as a completely legitimate request of her as an employee and those that she regarded as illegitimate. So I think we have to be very careful. Indeed, I've seen this in uh, bureaucracies too, that there is some assumption made not just on the part of the managers who think their views are uh, worthy and inviolable, but also on what, you know, the more junior staff, when she was not junior, I might add, um, they don't run the company, right? It's run for the benefit of the shareholders. I think she was right to say no. Yeah, I think we've, again, we've got to be quite careful about the outlier examples versus what the, the evidence is showing us. So, for example, just taking the social impact bonds, I was just looking here at uh, the the um, uh, the Brookings study of what had happened in the first 50 impact bonds, and they say the findings show that for the nearly 50 completed impact bonds, outcomes have in fact been achieved and investors have been repaid in all cases but two. So they turned out to be very good investments. If you look at... Well, they haven't been able to get them up in Australia. Yeah, if you look at where sophisticated investors are um are going uh it's anticipated that by 2025 um a third of assets will be in esg uh, will be esg screened over 53 trillion dollars and i deal with investors every day these are sophisticated very capitalist <laughs> institutions and individuals and they're moving in that direction because not just because they're woke warriors uh, and most of them are a long way from that but because they're seeing very strong evidence that you get better returns by doing this. And I would say the same is true of the studies from the likes of Harvard and McKinsey on gender, that it's not just any woman on the board, but diversity on the board um, does allow you to uh, to see things in a different way and make the company more sustainably profitable. So if I just stand back and say here, of course, there are excesses. Of course, there are cases where people overstep the mark. Of course, there are cases of impact washing, hypocrisy, uh, and skullduggery. 
But fundamentally, the question we're asking is, can you have profit with purpose or is it profit or purpose? And what we're seeing is that you absolutely can have both together. And most of the markets are moving towards this on market principles. And a lot of humans are moving towards this on the basis of their own principles. So I think there's every reason to say, yes, shareholder views matter. Um, they're extremely important. But in the end, businesses are embedded social institutions. And just like our super funds don't want to have give you a lot of money to retire with, but you retire into a world of fire and drought and destruction and grandchildren that have to breathe horrible air, um, our super funds take a longer view and insurers take a longer view and so on and say, no, look, we as institutions have to behave differently because over the long run, A, it's better for our shareholders, but B, we're operating in an environment where profit isn't the only outcome we're seeking, even as individuals inside businesses. Um, and I think we've got some healthy disagreement here, which is probably a good good moment to move. I mean, I mean, can I ask you before you do your section, how do you interpret all of this, Lloyd? What is What have you made of all these, uh, these arguments back and forth? Um, I think... It is important uh, when Judith was outlining Milton Friedman's views, they are nuanced. You know, Friedman was not saying businesses should not care about uh, social issues. He was saying there is a focus on the shareholder. They have invested it, but they must play the game. They must be within their legal rights. Now, that sort of felt quite, quite a strong argument, but I thought Andy's comment, which really sort of hit home to me, was, well, what happens if the government isn't stable? What happens if the government is not as good as it should be and therefore the legal frameworks and there's corruption and a whole batch of things? Well, then that legal game really falls apart. And I think that is a really, really critical point that, that gave me a, a lot of insight. Um, the last point that I, I would make, or the last two points that I would make, is the following. I think we've been talking a lot here about social purpose as if it has a liberal left-wing agenda, meaning the environment, uh, tobacco. Um, but, you know, Andy's from South Africa. This was a not just a racist state. It was an authoritarian state. Businesses there did engage in social purpose all the time. They funded the Scouts movement. They just happened to be white Scouts. The, the businesses in, in uh, Germany, in Nazi Germany, funded social movements. They funded fitness camps, you know, for the Aryan movement. That's a social purpose. And so that Friedman view that potentially this can lead to sort of totalitarianism is something that it would have been great to explore a little bit more. We were assuming a left-wing social purpose. But what happens if businesses engage in a right-wing social purpose? So those were some of the Interesting. Well, let's see what uh, Andy has to say about out. that. I mean, what mm -hmm. happens, Andy, if you if you if like, yes, we're all in for social purpose. Let's bring back the youth camps. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's important to see that the this notion of purpose-driven companies and impact investing has actually lit up the world and attracted investors precisely because it's not a right-wing or a left-wing approach. If you look at Blackstone, the biggest private equity firm in the world, they've just launched an impact fund. Uh, and Steve Schwartzman is famously the founder, um, a, a Republican who uh, Trump tapped to do various things. Uh, so it is important to see that this notion is not some left-wing or right-wing notion, but a notion of a better way to go forward with profit and with purpose. And if you're on the left, you can say, well, this is you know, low-income and vulnerable people uh, getting the essential services they need because companies are rarely coming to provide it, uh, because charity in the end is quite limited in its scope. Uh, and if you're on the right, you can say, well, this is people lifting themselves up by their bootstraps. It's companies giving them the opportunity. It's companies serving them as customers. Uh, it's a kind of, it's a business opportunity. Okay. Emil, are you happy for us Let's to move, move on, on. Into, into, into our chapter on, on principle of charity? So, so let me say a, one important thing about the principle of charity. There are many dimensions to the principle of charity. As we said in the outset, it's, 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 Seeking the truth, not winning the fight is just one part of it. But the other part is when we tend to engage in argument or debate, uh, our, often our inclination uh, is to choose the weakest part of the other person's argument. And, and in so doing, 
um, you know, we win the argument and we do this because it makes us feel clever and it makes us sometimes feel righteous. Maybe I'll start with you, Andy, you, and I'm going to give you a time limit. Let's, let's go for 60 seconds if you can. Can you give us the three strongest points about Judith's argument that you've taken from today? Sure. I think the, the first is um, free market capitalism can do tremendous good and the profit motive and markets work to, in many instances, to efficiently motivate uh, people and generate outcomes that we want. Mm -hmm. I think the second is that there is a great deal of hypocrisy out there, impact washing, virtue signaling, mm -hmm. green washing that can be uh, damaging cover for various uh, various practices. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the third is that um, you can have... Uh, 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 examples of uh, uh, the either the uh, individuals uh, intruding or companies intruding into spaces that are best left to government regulation, and we don't necessarily want uh, a highly intrusive state that mm. uh, damages uh, people's ability to participate in markets in various ways. Mm. And shareholders' interests do matter in that respect, very profoundly, and throwing them under a bus because you have some woke idea uh, that is extreme is not a good idea. Okay, excellent. Judith, how did, how did Andy do on his charitable, uh, on his charitable score? I, look, I, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the presentation is that um, markets and companies are probably better to deal with certain um, failures, social failures, uh, they're better than governments. And I completely accept that. Um, and I think that is a really interesting part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we know, for example, the old, um, mm -hmm. you know, we used to have the Commonwealth Employment Service, absolutely hopeless, centralised bureaucracy, achieved nothing, right? So mm -hmm. um, I, I absolutely accept that. Um, mm -hmm. I also accept that obviously... Um, not in all instances, that uh, a company focused on making a, a social purpose its core business is completely compatible with making a good return on capital and profits. I mean, that obviously is possible. And I guess, mm. you know, the final point okay, is that, um, you know, if there's an investor taste for this, then one would expect markets to accommodate that investor taste. So it's kind of... Um, it, it's not, uh, it's uh, sh shoving around the supply and demand. So, you know, in, 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 the, in the case of there being a large number of investors who are interested in this, we would expect companies to fill that space. I'm smelling charity here and I'm smelling <laughs> a little bit more common ground. But, but Judith, over to oh, you I now. I still disagree. No, 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 I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. You, you're allowed to disagree in the principle of charity. You just have to listen first. What, what do you think the big points of, of, of his argument, or the, the three strongest ones? Well, you know, I think, you know, as I've, I've just really said, that I think that, uh, you know, there clearly are... Um, probably quite a large number of examples of companies um, being able to make uh, completely compatible the promotion of a social purpose with making good profits. And uh, But, you know, I, I say in brackets, let's be very careful about what we regard as a social purpose. I mean, I was the director of Westfield. We, we built shopping mm -hmm. centres. Was that a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, you know? I mean... It's uh, very much in the eyes of the beholder, a lot of mm. things. And, you know, I think it's great that uh, he has been... But from Andy's point of view, the fact that he, be, he has been able to attract investors uh, a, and, a, and indeed a, a, a rising number of investors with rising contributions and satisfy their requirements both to get a return on their capital as well as feel that, uh, I guess, warm, fuzzy feeling of... Uh, uh, achieving these social purposes, um, you know, that has to be a good little example of, of what can happen. It doesn't mean it applies across the board. Andy, I'm just going to very quickly ask you uh, on the charitable index, how, how, how did you do? I think in the, the earlier part of that, <laughs> I would rate that pretty high in terms mm. of saying that um, most businesses can be better at dealing with these social problems 
um, that uh, you know purpose is completely compatible with this, that we can mm. meet investor demands and requests for this. I think that's all I, I yeah, absolutely. I think those really mm. nail a piece of what we're talking about. I think perhaps what it didn't get to was the notion that um, profit and purpose can be synergistic. In other words, it's not just no trade-off or a warm, fuzzy feeling, but mm. that purpose can generate opportunity mm. um, and really protect that long-term return profile that Judith mm. was interested mm. in and supported. But I liked all of those those comments. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Judith, I, 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 you know, one of the things um, I, that I, I'm, I'm intrigued by, and I, you know, you are often in the sort of public forum, you on uh, – you know, Q&A shows, uh, 7.30 reports, these are all big, tough shows. And, I, and I've seen some of the video clippage of, of that. And I, I was interested, when you review yourself, how do you think you could change the way you articulate things t- to ensure that people are more charitable to your views? You know, I'm not sure I regard myself as being in a popularity quest, to tell you the truth. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I'm an economist, uh, a rational economist, a probably conservative economist, and I'm sure I have lots and lots of detractors, but it doesn't really worry me. I I had a boss a long time ago who said, uh, made two points to me. He said, it's always important to be courageous and it's always important to be yourself. And I think that's how I have Mm. run my professional life. And now, of course, mm. I'm at the point where I care, right? I do worry for sort of younger versions mm. of myself mm. because they have to care because I think, you know, and I think this is the really unfortunate mm. um, path we've come down and, and you know, I eventually broke my connection with the university system of which I'd been connected for 40 years, m- mainly because... I couldn't bear it anymore, mm-hmm. but then I also didn't want to damage the people who are kind of my associates there. It was better to break. And I think that's very sad. You know, when I first went to the university, um, I had some really good friends who really disagreed with me and I disagreed with them, but we were really good friends. I think that world has sort of uh, mm-hmm. narrowed a lot. Mm-hmm. So. I'm just intrigued, you know, if, if, I mean, you are often facing attack, you know, because you're in that space and you're very clear about your, your political position and social position. I mean, do you find that every time you attack, you're getting more conservative uh, because, you know, you have to defend yourself? Um, I don't think so. I think I've uh, had a consistent position. I mean, I don't have a Twitter account, um, but one of my great friends from the university um, who's been my great friend for, you know, over 40 years, he tells me that they go crazy about me on Twitter. But actually half of the comments are about why doesn't she have a Twitter account, uh, which they sort of regard as somehow, you know, failing my democratic mm. obligation to have a Twitter account. And the rest I think is very damaging. But, uh, look, I think it's, mm-hmm. I mean, I wish there were more people like me, frankly, because, you know, just... You know, take this podcast. It's mm. boring if we all agree. But if we can have open debate, that's actually a really good thing and it's a mm. really good thing for society. Andy, a question for you. Uh, you know, you're an entrepreneur, an investor. It would seem to me in my experience of entrepreneurs, um, they're actually often very open. Um, in fact, I find them much more open than the corporate culture, uh, partly because they, they benefit a lot more. How many friends do you have outside of your bubble that are right-wing and conservative? How many friends would you have that would agree with with Judith? So I actually love having people who argue <laughs> with me and disagree. I had a great um, experience. I was uh, got a, a fellowship to Harvard for a year and sat at the feet of Hilary Putnam, the great philosopher, whose life had started, his work life had started working on causation with Einstein. That's how long he's been around. And he would found different arguments and fold fields and books would be written and then he'd go against that view. And Mm -hmm. then a little while later, he'd go against that view. And everybody Mm -hmm. said, how can you be so inconsistent? It's appalling. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, I don't approach life as 
something where you stake out a little bit of territory and then stand there and defend it against every comer for the next mm. 50 years. Rather, I want to be you know, crossing new frontiers with mm. uh, new sets of allies all mm. the time. Mm. And so I think of life very much as like that. And actually, again, I'm trained in philosophy, and philosophy is about questioning the assumptions that mm. others take for granted. And part of mm. the reason I value things like diversity so mm. much on boards or in groups is that you do tend to, we all of us have enormous blind spots. We all make enormous epistemic errors. And hopefully we not only correct ourselves, but other people correct us. Yeah, so, so that, that's interesting. One last question, maybe, and that is, you know, in the principle of charity, uh, the ability to change one's mind after listening to an argument is important. Emil and often I have this conversation, and he says, well, you don't have to change your mind. Uh, you, you actually may be right, and that, that is part of the principle of charity. But listening and changing one's mind is part of science uh, if we think the data is there and we believe that the opinion is more valid than our one. How many times have you changed your mind, or could you give us an example of a time where you believe you've been wrong on a social issue and actually the group that was right were in fact conservative commentators and they got it right rather than you? Sure, absolutely. So um, I, a long time ago, was managing director of an organization called Ashoka that supported nonprofit social entrepreneurs. So people who use business methods, but mm. to achieve social goods. And I looked at all of these uh, thousands of social entrepreneurs uh, mm. that Ashoka had funded. And I saw these people as extremely pure uh, mm. because they didn't have the profit motive. They mm. were devoted themselves, Mother Teresa-like, to mm. social outcomes. And over time, as I looked at which of those uh, social entrepreneurs had really scaled to reaching tens of millions of people and solving their problems, the likes of Muhammad Yunus from Grameen Bank, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, and uh, and Faisal Abed from Bruck, uh, who together have basically lifted the life expectancy of Bangladesh by 20 years in a failed state. And I looked at them, and it turned out that they were doing that through business. Mm. <laughs> uh, Grameen Bank, Grameen Phone, these sorts of businesses mm. were mm. turning out to be hyperscalable. And so mm. that notion of the purity of motive was mm. quite misleading. And Ashoka mm. itself had started with the founder following a barefoot Gandhian around India, giving away land. You don't get more mm. left-wing than that. Mm. But mm. Um, it had attracted ultimately, and the impact investing field ultimately attracted a lot of people on the right mm. who mm. said, look, there is just business and investment is where the trillions come from. And mm. if you really want to move this world, charity dollars are very limited in their quantums. And the markets are trillions and trillions of dollars. So mm. go for business, go for investment. And I ended up doing exactly that and founding, okay. frankly, a private equity firm uh, that is a pretty capitalist uh, institution in general. It's just oriented entirely to profit with purpose. There is one more question I'm going to ask this time, Judith. I, I feel like I, I have to balance this out uh, to Andy. Can you give us an example maybe of a time uh, or an issue which you believe you've changed your mind on or you now believe it was wrong, but actually the left or the liberal viewpoint was, was more correct than yours, meaning than the conservative viewpoint? I mean, I was going to mention, and, and, and perhaps this would be something on which we agree, actually, was that I think when I was, you know, you know first graduated, um, you know, I was a believer in both the beneficence of government and the efficacy of government intervention. And I think over time, I don't know whether this is a left-wing or a right-wing view, I just saw through numerous examples of the failure of government interventions and um, government programs. You know, they have, you know, they have great titles, they have great missions, they have great sub-objectives, but they really have a habit, not just of going wrong, but often of benefiting or profiting entirely the wrong people. So, you know, you see in a lot of these big government programs, mm. the ones that are, you know, living the life of Raleigh are really the providers. So, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, who can't be concerned about the plight of those with bad mental health? Um, but, you know, the notion that you spend billions of dollars, mm. it will fix the problem. 
when in all likelihood most of the benefits will just be snaffled by mm-hmm. the providers. Now, once upon a time, I wouldn't have believed that. I would have thought, you know, you just have to design it well, you have to just manage it well. I've come to the conclusion you can't do that and that that's why probably I have more in common with Andy in the sense that I think it is something that you have to get um, the private sector involved in and you have to make, you know, ensure there are probably profit motivations to make sure the social purpose is fulfilled because it sure ain't fulfilled in, in many government-run programs. Great. I'm going to start to conclude. I just want to thank both of you um, from both Emil and I. And, and, uh, you know, I'm sure both of you walked in um, with biases, uh, no doubt, uh, maybe not strong biases, but some form of bias uh, with respect to each other. One of the principles of charity is to assume also that people are are, are smart and intelligent and therefore do a better job at evaluating their argument. And I just want to say that's what I felt certainly throughout the process of, of today and in, in our conversation and to also in the conversation that you had with Emil. So thank you very much uh, from my side and Emil. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.